So Heavenly Father, as we sing those words, God, I pray that we would know and we would be confident in those words that we just sang. God, that you are our hope, that you are the light in the darkness, that you restore our broken hearts. God, we sing your praise today because you have given us breath to praise you. So Lord, whether we are singing your praise, God, from the valley through tears, or whether we're singing your praise from the mountaintop through celebration, God, we know that you are God and you are good no matter where we are. And Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. I don't know how your week has been, but in, in the life of Brian, this week was pretty awesome. A lot of reasons to smile. Uh, we had America's birthday. I mean, it's pretty awesome, right? Uh, coming off the camp high, like I, Riley and I, we've, again, we moved into our house and with Green Lake and everything going on, we haven't had a lot of time to settle in. This week, the settling started to happen with a lot of cleaning and even the, that camp high, all the music, I'm still doing motions like crazy. And so like the fourth, fifth time through the playlist, Riley's like, would you clean something? I'm like, I am. Check your heart. I'm moving. I'm, 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 again, a lot of, lot of good stuff. Graduation celebrations. Uh, Chad Kruger got engaged yesterday, which is super exciting. So now like my original core, like all my, my core students, Kyla, uh, Danielle, Rachel, Chad, they're all like engaged and married and stuff. This is like, I'm not liking the age I'm getting to. Uh, but a lot of reasons to smile. And the one, the one thing that we can come, no matter what we're going through, whether we've had a great week, whether we've had a terrible, terrible one, uh, we can always come back to the cross and remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. And no matter what we're going through, again, the highs, lows, he makes everything okay because of the sacrifice that he made for us. Today, as we're going to move into our, our time of communion, and instead of doing a soul care question and a moment of si- or a minute of silence and all that, we thought it was important since we have some big kids in the room, and by big I mean like the elementary school kids, um, we thought it was important that we kind of explain what we're doing. Why do we do communion? Uh, what, is it, what does this mean? And so today, Again, we thought it was important to, to explain that when Jesus was about to go die a brutal death on the cross, he sat down with his closest friends and he said, guys, listen, something's going to happen. And you don't really understand like, the weight of what I'm about to do, but, but just know that coming soon, when, when I'm not with you, you can take this bread. And he, he took a loaf of bread and he, he broke it and shared it with his friends and he said, Guys, you take this bread and you remember me. You remember the body that is about to be broken. The body that I gave up for you and, and for the world. And again, they don't really understand fully what, what's happening yet. And he, Jesus says, also, take this cup. And he shared his cup and he said, Boys, listen. I'm, this blood, or this, this, I'm sorry, this cup, remember me. This is my blood. This is the blood that I'm about to spill for the world. All the sin that ever was, all the sin that ever will be, I'm taking that weight away. I have come to rescue you from the pain of your sin. That's amazing. That is, quite frankly, it's, it's beautiful, right? What wasn't beautiful is the way that he died, though. It was, again, heinous. He didn't deserve it at all, but he loves us so much 
that he did it for us. And when we enter into that relationship, when we come to know that Jesus, we admit that we've sinned, we know that Jesus died on that cross, and we choose him as our forgiver and leader, we can remember him by taking communion. So this isn't like, you know, snack time. This is serious time. So what we'd like for you to do today, uh, if you have a little one in the room, it's, it, parents, it's up to you. You can you bring them along. I'd, I'd encourage you, I'd encourage First Service to, to sit and, and talk about what communion means for you, for your child, for your family. What, what does this mean? Uh, and then come and receive communion. Again, like normal, there are four stations around the room, and our worship team is going to be playing one more song, and you can come receive communion, take it back to your seat, and again, just talk about what, what does this mean uh, for you, for your family, for the rest of your life. Talk about Jesus' love with each other. We are going to have our servers come receive the morning offering, and as they do, we have a few announcements for you. One, uh, with students, Refuge is going to meet at its normal time this Wednesday from 6.30 to 8.30, right here. Uh, so we'll be here this Wednesday, next Wednesday, July 18th. Again, the cold waters, I don't know what is going through their brains, but they have opened up their house to all of us rambunctious refugers, uh, and we're going to be going over to their house to spend some time in the pool and pizza and all kinds of crazy stuff. That'll be from 5.30 to 9. Again, I sent out a remind about that, uh, saying that more information, directions, all that will be sent later. So if you're not signed up for Remind and you have a student entering 6th, 7th, or 8th grade in the fall, you want to make sure to go to the welcome desk this morning and grab a sheet to get signed. There's like a sheet with full explanation, a full explanation on how to get signed up for Remind. It's how we send out all of our information now, and it's worked pretty well because uh, we can interact uh, and you can get all your questions answered and that kind of stuff. So make sure you get signed up for that. Um, there's also a Remind for Revive that you can sign up for. Um, so if you have kids in both groups, you can get signed up for both and, and stay up to date with everything that's going on. Today, uh, Revive is going to be meeting from 12 to 2. And today is also the last day that you can sign up for Omega. So we want to make sure that if you are coming with us, you need to be signed up by midnight tonight because registration ends at midnight tonight uh, so that we can get every, like the rides and everything all situated and ready to go up there. We'll be gone from Thursday morning through Sunday evening. Uh, so Revive will be off next week because we'll be coming back from camp. Uh, but again, it's going to be a great time, so make sure that you get registered today. Now, um, my parents have finally decided that they can't run on like high energy like all the time. So they've decided uh, that they're, gonna, they, they're taking a little break. I've been asked by several people, they're like, what do you do to make your parents' lives easier? And I was like, well, <laughs> like nothing. Uh, <laughs> I'm me. That's my sister and my brother's job. But uh, yeah, so they're, they're taking a little bit of a break. They're getting away uh, up at Green Lake, which again, knowing them, they're probably doing like projects instead of actually relaxing. But I know they got out on the water yesterday, uh, they used, used some kayaks and stuff. Since they're up there, uh, we have to have someone speak. And since we just had camp, I figured the best person that we could possibly have lead, lead off like the the teach series here, uh, would be Southfield's own Churchill Blabbington, a.k.a. John Beaker. So if you would, join me in welcoming John to the stage. 
Well, you stole my opening. That was uh, the idea was going to be that I'd heard a rumor in the foyer that uh, I bear a resemblance to a certain day camp character, and that there was also a rumor that he was going to be doing the speaking today, and I have two words for that. No, really? Absolutely not. Okay, more than two words. Now, glad you're here this morning. Uh, we're excited about the summer series. We're excited about diving into it. Uh, it's, I think it's going to be a good one, uh, teaching us on how to live life uh, not, uh, with our focus in the right place, not in the wrong place. Well, years ago, before the advent of Netflix, before the uh, advent of Amazon Prime, people actually used to play cards for fun. No, really, we did. We would actually play cards, and, and that was our entertainment, and it was great. Uh, there was a two-handed game that Sue and I used to play a lot. Uh, maybe you've heard of it. It's called Cribbage. Cribbage. Right? It's a game you play with a deck of cards. There's a little board and some pegs that go in it. And the thing about Cribbage is it's basically a game of luck. There's a little bit of skill involved. There, there's some skill involved, but... It's, there's a lot of luck involved. So if you're going to play five games of cribbage, generally one person's going to win three games and another person's going to win two games. It's pretty rare to have one person win all five games of cribbage in a row. Well, years ago during a particularly unlucky streak of playing cribbage, I think Sue beat me. I stopped keeping track after a while. Like, 20 games in a row. It was ridiculous. It was so frustrating, especially for a competitive guy like me, because it was unbelievable to me that a person could be both unskilled and as unlucky as I was through all of those games. I literally, there, I remember times where I was 20 points ahead with one hand to go, and somehow I managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory over and over again. It was, oh, it was maddening. I got to a point where I wanted to just take the cards, throw them out the window, throw away the cribbage board, all those little pegs that you had to put in, just get rid of them all. But alas, you can't do that in the game of cribbage because knowing how you're doing against your opponent is a key part of the game. It's the way it works. Well, last week, (coughs) excuse me, last week we did begin a new series that has a lot to do with keeping score. In this series, we're looking at life as a board game. And much like at the end of a board game, when our lives come to an end, all that we've won or acquired and achieved goes back in the box. It's left behind. The old adage, you can't take it with you, actually has some merit. Well, this series is based on a story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12. The story was actually a response that Jesus had to a request to intervene in a financial dispute between two brothers. Before launching into the parable, Jesus began by making this compelling statement. Beware. Beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Get that. Life is not measured or scored by how much you own. Jesus is saying, listen, 
Scoring your life by your possessions is a huge mistake. It runs completely contrary to God's design for your life. In that one verse, Jesus upended the scoring system that people had used for centuries to measure their progress. In that one verse, Jesus upended the scoring system that many of us use to this very day. It's almost as if Jesus walked in on our collective, on the collective cribbage games of our lives, flipped the table, threw out the cards, got rid of the scoreboard and the little tiny pegs in order to do a total and complete reset of our understanding of how the game was to be played and how to properly keep score. Jesus went on to tell the story of a man that is only referred to as the rich fool. In the remainder of the chapter. And the story goes like this. It says that there was once a rich man who had successfully uh, produced a farm that produced fine crops. But the man had a problem. He was directionless. He didn't know what to do with all that he had. So he devised a plan. And his plan could be summarized in two words. Get richer. But the plan, however, had two fatal flaws. The first one is obvious. Get richer has no end. It's interminable. There is no point where get richer stops being the goal. Enough is never enough. It never ends. But the second fatal flaw is maybe even a little bit more important. His life had an end. His life had an end. God said to the man, you fool, you fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get all that you worked for? And the implied answer is someone else who is not you. Somebody else. And the man, all that he had done, all that he had worked for, all that he had strived to achieve throughout the course of his life, was going to be for naught. When the game of the rich fool's life ended, all of his possessions went back into the box. What a waste. What a total waste. Jesus wraps up the story with one final verse. He says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich, rich relationship with God. Now, as Dennis pointed out last week, this verse is really the focus of our summer series. It's Southfield. We don't want to be fools. We don't want to be characterized by Jesus as living foolishly. So we aspire to live lives that are rich toward God. We want to make sure that we're living our lives in accordance with what God says matters. And that means keeping score in a way that is consistent with what he says matters and not based on what the world says. So for our purposes, keeping score means measuring whether or not we're being successful in, our, in life as God defines success. That's what keeping score is. Now, in order to adjust our mindset to God's mindset, we need to understand the wrong ways that we've been trained to keep score in our world. There are a lot of them. The fact is, we're all scorekeepers. We all measure ourselves because we want to know if we're doing okay or not. 
And one of the wrong ways that we've learned to evaluate ourselves is by comparing ourselves against each other. Comparing ourselves to other people. How am I doing against that other person? Solomon captured this perfectly thousands of years ago when he wrote, Then I observed that most people are motivated to success, whatever that means, because of their envy of their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Meaningless wind chasing. Doesn't get a whole lot more trivial than that. When we're comparing ourselves against each other, we're looking at ourselves, and then we're looking at someone else, and we're making a judgment call. Either we're doing better than they are, or they're doing better than we are. And the obvious problem with this scoring system is that it's a zero-sum game. In order for me to win, you have to lose. In order for you to win, I have to lose. Keeping score by comparing myself against you always leads to discontentment. When it comes to stuff acquisition, we tend to compare ourselves to others who have slightly more than we do, which then motivates us and drive us to work harder so that we can catch up because we feel like we're behind. And at its root, this type of comparison is driven by envy and jealousy, neither of which are characteristics that are becoming to a Christ follower. When it comes to morality, on the other hand, we tend to compare ourselves to others that, who are doing slightly worse than we perceive ourselves to be doing. We say things like, well, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not that guy. At least I'm not her. At least I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than a lot of people. At the root of this type of comparison is arrogance and pride, the original sin. And just in case it's not already clear, our morality is not graded on a curve. It is a straight scale. 100% for passing, everything else is a fail. 99.9, doesn't get the job done. Fortunately for us, when we ask Jesus to lead our lives, God takes the righteousness that Jesus achieved in his lifetime and credits it to our life ledger, giving us a perfect score. Comparing ourselves against others never leads to good results. In Genesis chapter 4, we read about a classic comparer whose name was Cain. Cain was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. Now, Cain also had a little brother named Abel. And as a firstborn, I imagine that Cain was probably always just a little bit ahead of baby brother when it came to pretty much everything. Walking, running, animal naming, whatever it was that they were doing. Cain was probably used to being, he was number one. He came in first. Except in one really important area. Finding favor with God. The Bible tells us that Cain brought some of what he had. Some of what he had as an offering to God. Abel brought God the very best, the very best of what he had. God accepted Abel's offering but rejected Cain's. And rather than heeding God's warning to master the anger and the sin and the jealousy that was crouching at his door, Cain opted to keep score by comparing himself against his brother, Abel. The comparison led to envy. The envy led to anger. 
The anger led to rage. The rage led to murder. The murder led to condemnation. Cain had a choice. He had an option. God made it abundantly clear to him. He could follow in the footsteps of his brother and offer his best to God too. Or he could give in to sin. Cain chose sin. Cain was a comparer. Now it's pretty easy to look at the story of Cain and kind of cluck our tongues at him and for foolishly comparing himself against his brother instead of just doing the right thing. But do we do the same thing? All too often we do. When I was in high school, believe it or not, I remember being in high school. Uh, I remember being motivated. There was, there was a wall of pictures uh, that I walked by every single day. It was the top 10 students uh, in each class. And that, those pictures would stay up for years beyond when a student graduated. I wanted my picture on that wall. I wanted to be relevant. I wanted an academic legacy that would outlive my career at high school. And so I struggled, and I strived and did my best all four years. But you know what? I never did crack the top ten. There were others who were just smarter than I was, better at test-taking, better students. And I let that define me and provide validation, or in my case, rejection. For four years, I compared myself and defined my reality by that wall that never bore my image. To what end? Was I content with who I was, with the caliber of student that I was? No. You see, the comparison scorekeeping system robbed me of contentment. That's what comparing does. When I compare myself against you, when you compare yourself against me, it robs us of contentment. Well, so what should we do then? Should we not pursue excellence? I mean, should we just give up, not try our best? Well, of course not. That's ridiculous. Strive for excellence. We most definitely should. Colossians 3.17 reminds us, whatever you do, whatever you say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him or through him to God the Father. Whatever you're doing, give it your all. Go for it. Be the best that you can be. But let's give up keeping score by comparing ourselves against one another. Instead, let's put on the belt of truth that tells us that we define ourselves by the truth of God's word and what he says about us instead of by what we feel about ourselves or by by what others tell us is true about us. What God says matters more. It It matters more. His voice is more important than any of the other voices we hear on a daily basis, including the voices in our head. God's opinion should always carry more weight than the opinions of others, and quite frankly, more weight even than our own opinion of ourselves. Well, not only are we great at comparing ourselves against others, we also have a penchant for what I'll call unhealthy competition. A competition... I love competition. It's a great thing. It can be a wonderful thing. It can drive us to achieve heights that we never dreamed possible. I love competing in basketball against Mr. Kuchar, Mr. Lakin, Mr. Worvey, and Mr. Kyle. And when we compete, sometimes they win. 
They're better than I am in the moment. The most of the time when we compete, I win. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to wait until the rims are raised to regulation height and the floor is put in in the Family Life Center. Time will tell on that front. Time will tell. See, competition can be fun. Competition can be great. Competition in and of itself is not bad. However, it is a lousy way to measure ourselves. It's a poor scoreboard, particularly when the competition becomes toxic. Last week, Dennis pointed out that King Saul liked to use the competitive scoring system when measuring himself against his eventual successor, King David. Saul was a scoreboard watcher. His constant scoreboard watching, checking to find out, did I do as well as David? Did I do better than David? Incited a deep sense of fear and dread of David. And the resulting jealousy poisoned his relationship with David and simply drove him mad over the course of time. Another example of competitive scoring in the Bible can be observed in the relationship described between Joseph and his brothers in Genesis chapter 37. The Bible tells us that Jacob, so Jacob is the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. Jacob had 12 sons, but Joseph, ah, Joseph was his favorite. Jacob knew it, Joseph knew it, and most of all, Joseph's brothers knew it. And to make the favoritism even more evident, to cement it in all of their minds, Jacob had a special coat made for Joseph to commemorate how much more special he was. Than his brothers. Now, as you might imagine, this infuriated Joseph's brothers, and they became insanely jealous of him. Why? What was the root of it? What was the root of their jealousy? Simple. The competitive scoreboard. In each of their minds, the score was Joseph won special multicolored coat, the brothers zero. Joseph won, brothers nothing. Joseph more important, brothers less important. He won, they lost. Now, clearly, Jacob didn't do anyone any favors, not Joseph, not the brothers, by this blatant favoritism. But the focal point of the story really isn't Jacob. It's Joseph and his relationship with his brothers. The brothers' hatred of Joseph grew and grew until they hatched a plot to get rid of him once and for all. Much like Cain's envy drove him to the murder of his brother, the, the jealousy of Joseph's brothers drove them to sell Joseph into slavery. The competitive spirit between Joseph and his brothers was clearly toxic and led to horrible consequences for both Joseph and his brothers. Now, the greatness of God is that he was able to use this horrible set of circumstances for good later on. But that did not come without a huge price for Joseph. A lot, a lot of years in isolation, a lot of years in jail. Now, it's important for us to recognize the red flags and the warning signs so that we don't veer off into unhealthy, toxic territory when it comes to keeping score in our own lives. We don't want to be like Saul. We don't want to be like Joseph's brothers. So, what are those red flags? Well, one simple one is just a thermometer. A measure of the level of heat in our competition. When we're prone to losing self-control in our drive to win or achieve, that's a big red flag. 
often that manifests itself in outbursts of anger or what we might call verbiage unbecoming, a Christ follower. The competitive churn inside us bubbles up and we end up spewing out words and actions that we would never normally do. Neither of those help us become who God wants us to be. When we can observe that type of behavior in our own lives, we can tell that the competitive spirit has taken a wrong turn and it needs to be adjusted. Another huge red flag is when I allow what I achieve or what I'm attempting to achieve to define my worth. When I see you as an opponent to be crushed rather than as a soul to be cherished, I devalue you. And our relationship suffers because I'm not interested in playing the game the way that God says that I should play it, love God and love others. I'm interested in beating you. We become competitors instead of teammates. My sole focus becomes on pushing you down to extend my advantage. That's not the way that God wants us to score. Does that ever happen to you? It does to me. Absolutely. I recently had a pretty eye-opening experience at work. As an engineer in the electronics industry, my job involves teaching and assisting my customers to solve difficult problems, hard problems. I was on a trip recently where I just ran into a buzzsaw of a problem that I couldn't solve. And I really struggled with it. I wanted to let my boss know how important it was. And down deep, I felt pretty good about that. That I knew this was the right thing to do. I was so on top of it. But the response that I got left me stunned and confused. I expected either extreme gratitude for finding an important problem or extreme alarm that served as a call to action to get the problem fixed. But I didn't get either of those reactions. My report was met with apathy. It was delivered with a shout and received with a yawn. And it really bothered me. It really bothered me. And the more I thought about why it bothered me, the more I realized that what was at the root of it was a misguided understanding of my own worth. My sense of competition with my peers and even, frankly, to a large extent, with myself had become toxic because I relied on it to deliver something to me that it could never possibly deliver, lasting value. My value, your value, doesn't come from what we do. It comes from God, period. Maybe you've experienced something similar in the world of academics, in the world of athletics, or work, or even parenting. You get a good grade, but not a perfect grade, and you feel dejected. You run a good race, but not the perfect race, and you feel lost. You accomplish a task at work, and your, your work is not recognized or rewarded, and so you feel overlooked. You successfully navigate your way through a difficult parenting day, but no one says thank you. And you feel unappreciated. In a competitive scoring paradigm, it seems that we're only as good as our last so-called success. We're only as valuable as our most recent achievement. Fail to achieve and you fail to be valuable. You see, this is the glaring problem with keeping the score through competition. 
we completely miss the fact that our value is defined by God and God alone. He's the only one that has the right to define us because he made us. When we elevate our thoughts, our feelings, and our opinions, or someone else's thoughts, or feelings, or opinions, over the top of what God says, we're looking at a phony scoreboard that is not telling us the truth about how we're doing. Perhaps like me, you find yourself in need of a reminder that what you do is not the same as who you are. Regardless of whether or not you solve a problem, run a great race, make a great grade, or parent like a pro today, or not, you are who God says you are. When you choose Christ as your forgiver and leader, we belong to God. We belong to him. You are loved. You are cherished. You are valued. You have a purpose far beyond what you do. That's the scoreboard that matters. That's God's scoreboard. Now we know, we understand that we need to stop looking at these bogus scoreboards and start looking at the right one. But how do we do it? What's the pathway to get there? Well, a lot of it boils down to perspective. It's perspective. We need to learn to differentiate the things that are temporary from the things that are not. Take a look around you this morning. What do you see? Lights, drums, keyboards, chairs, sound system, this building. All of those things have one thing in common. They are temporary. They're not eternal. When the game is over, it goes back in the box. Think about your home, your vehicle, your job, your bank accounts, your athletic achievements, and your academic achievements. Temporary, 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 temporary. None of it will last forever. None of it. Not a single bit. Now look around the room and take note of the living, breathing people that you see sitting in those chairs. Friends and acquaintances, those you know and those you don't know yet, young and old, each one of them is eternal. Eternal, 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 eternal. Every one of us. Each human will experience a temporary earthly life lived in the here and now and an eternal existence that is either spent with God in heaven or apart from God in hell. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we read that God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart, your heart, my heart. You are more than here and now. People are not temporary. God is not temporary. And maybe that's why when asked what the most important command was, Jesus responded, loving God and loving people because they don't go back in the box. If you're going to live life here well, you need to be able to distinguish what matters most from what matters less. You are more than a mere mortgage. You are more than a race. You are more than a simple taxpayer. You are more than the sum of your assets minus your liabilities. You are more than your grades. You are noble. 
You are made in God's image. And for that reason alone, your life should never be about simply acquiring the perishable, but rather on building things that are imperishable. Wealth erodes. Power wanes. Beauty fades. Our souls are eternal. We need to not be duped into simply pursuing the perishable, but instead we should pursue that which will not perish. Have you ever eaten a really, really good piece of fruit? I I mean a really good piece of fruit. Picture in your mind for a moment the, the freshest, most amazing piece of fruit that you've ever eaten. Juicy, sweet pineapple, a fresh strawberry, Maybe, it's, maybe for you, it's, it's a banana, a peach, a pear, or an apple. Do you remember how amazing it tasted? So amazing that it was so good, it almost made you smile. It's just so amazing, so good. Imagine that, instead of eating the fruit, you put it on your mantle for a couple of months to admire its beauty and perfection. After two months of sitting out, would you be excited to eat in the, or to take a bite of that mushy, mealy, bug-infested piece of fruit? Uh, probably not. I wouldn't be. And for those of you who just hate all fruit, you can imagine your favorite fresh piece of bread. Right? Maybe a bagel, hot pretzel, cheese. I know it's almost lunchtime. A warm piece of, of, of sourdough bread or, or a piping hot loaf of French bread. Instead of eating it while it's hot, imagine again putting that bread on your countertop for a few months to admire its beauty and bask in its perfection. Would you be interested in eating that piece of bread after it's gone bad? No. Why not? Well, simple. Because it's gone bad. That's what perishable means. There's a shelf life, a timetable when the food is no longer good. None of us want to eat spoiled fruit, stale bread, or moldy cheese. We characterize that food as being no longer fit to eat. So why is it that this principle is obvious when we're dealing with what we put in our mouths, but somehow it eludes us when we're talking about what we put into our spirit and how we score our lives? Jesus himself, when tempted by Satan to turn stones into nice warm baguettes from the oven, replied with a piece of wisdom that we would do well to heed. Man does not live by bread alone, by stuff alone, by earnings alone, by achievements alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Bread is perishable. The words that proceed from the mouth of God are not. They last forever. And maybe this is why Jesus taught us to pray to God, give us this day our daily bread instead of give us a lifetime supply of bread today. He wanted to teach us the difference between the perishable bread stuff of this life and the imperishable giver of the bread, God. Perishable things in and of themselves, they're very good when viewed in the proper context. But a life spent in pursuit of the perishable is as unwise and unfruitful as eating a month-old brown banana or a rock-hard piece of moldy, stale bread. 
Jesus helps us to redirect our pursuit in the game, in the game of life, from the perishable to the imperishable, a much more noble and wise pursuit. In John 6, 27, he says, don't be so concerned, so concerned about perishable things like food and stuff and achievements and whatever. Spend your energy, your life, your time, your resources seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. That's imperishable. He goes on to say in Matthew 6, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, wherever you're keeping score, wherever what you value is, that's where your heart's going to be too. That's where the desires of your heart are going to be. Let's dump out on the comparing and competing scoring systems and start measuring success in our lives by how ardently and fervently we pursue God through Christ. If we're truly going to shift our focus from the perishable to the imperishable, we're going to need to make some changes. It's not going to happen automatically. If we're not already part of God's family by having made Jesus our forgiver and leader. It's time to make that choice and get our eternal destiny settled once and for all. As the Apostle Paul writes succinctly in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who makes Jesus their forgiver and leader that calls on his name. Now for those of us who already are Christ followers, we're not off the hook on this one. Because calling on the name of the Lord is something that we need to be doing every day. The more we look to God, the more we communicate to God, the more we talk to God, the more we call on his name through prayer, the more aware of his presence we become. And the less enamored with temporary stuff we become. Further, we need a focal shift from the stuff of earth to the stuff of heaven. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians so we don't look at the troubles that we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze. We turn our attention on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. Back in the box they go. But the things we cannot see will last forever. This week, instead of letting our agenda and mood be set by the things that have to be done on Monday morning... Let's center our, our day and our week around Sunday morning, recalling that God actually has an agenda for us that supersedes our own. Before walking into our agendas, let's start asking the question, God, what's on your agenda for me today? Finally, let's take a hard look at how we're spending our time and our money in light of Paul's counsel to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He writes, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good and their time. Right? They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasures as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience 
true life. This week can be different than last week was. This week can be better than last week. This week, we can begin the process of becoming rich toward God so that we store up treasure in heaven instead of storing up treasure on earth. This week can be a new beginning. With God's help, let's make it so. Let's talk to him. Father in heaven, thank you for the perspective that you give us. Uh, Teach us to number our days aright. Help us to understand that where, where we are now, this place that we live now, that we call home, is so temporary. And it does all go back in the box. Shift our mindset, shift our perspective uh, to your perspective. We don't want to live foolish lives. We don't. We want to live our lives wisely, keeping score based on the things that you say matter, uh, not based on the things that the world says matter. And we ask that you would, uh, you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here this morning. Have a great morning. We'll see you next week.